It's time to talk about Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. And now, here's Ira. Las Vegas is an ever-changing city, but there was one decade where it determined to be a unique destination, set apart from the rest of America, yet at the same time welcoming America. During this moment in time, there were also historic countercurrents, including mob influence, atomic testing, and the reality of segregation. But through it all, Las Vegas defined itself in an image that had lasting power. And my guest, Larry Craig, knows a lot about that era. He's author of Becoming America's Playground, Las Vegas in the 1950s, published by the University of Oklahoma Press and available at Amazon and all the usual places. And Larry, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. I look forward to this. Well, you've written so many books on Las Vegas, 10 books, I believe, but several of them are about Las Vegas. Why you're interested in Las Vegas? Because you're based in Missouri. That's right. Well, I can, I can precisely explain when my interest in Las Vegas history began. I, I was a tourist for uh, several years in a row, beginning in 1992. And being an academic historian, I began to think, well, I, I don't know anything about the history of Las Vegas. So I began reading as much as I could find on Las Vegas history. And uh, I found some really wonderful books, notably by Eugene Mooring, Resort City and the Sun Belt. And it was that book that, that generated a really important question for me, and that is, what explains why so many people come to Las Vegas and the number goes up every year? Despite recessions or anything like that, the gross number of people coming to Las Vegas goes up every year. So I, I decided to try and figure out, was it mainly image that people had of Las Vegas, or was it a promotional effort on the part of, of the civic leaders in Las Vegas, or was was it a combination of the two? So that's really where my interest began, and I, I did serious research beginning in 2003, and that's what led to so many articles and the three books that I've done. And you were starting research at a time when technology was not at the level that it is now. No, that's right. In fact, I, I've made over 50 research trips to Las Vegas from Missouri. Whenever I could fit in a research trip in my academic endeavors, it might be three days, it might be seven days. I think once I was able to fit in 20 days. So I, I began doing serious research in, in 2003, and, and to do that, I had to, to come to Las Vegas, and I've made over 50 research trips to Las Vegas, notably to the Special Collections Library at UNLV. Now, what's changed in, in the subsequent 17 years is that libraries like UNLV have been able to digitize much of their material. So a lot of the research I do now, I can do from my office right here, looking at uh, databases with uh, the Las Vegas Review Journal, the Las Vegas Age, the, the Las Vegas Sun, and many of the manuscript collections at UNLV are also digitized. On your trips to Las Vegas, were you able to connect with people who were still around that had been involved in the 50s? Oh, I, I was lucky in that regard. Uh, one of the, <clears throat> the agencies that I got very interested in was the Las Vegas News Bureau, which began in the very late 1940s. And I was able to interview the, the gifted photographer Don English, who was with the, the News Bureau from its very beginnings until the early 1990s. And he was very helpful in, in describing what their mission was with the, with the News Bureau, particularly in the 1950s. And then I also 
got to interview the the longtime general manager of of the news bureau, Don Payne, and, and he was also very helpful. And that led to some interviews with some publicists like Harvey Diedrich. Harvey Diedrich was a, a very successful publicist in the 1950s. Yes, his last position, I believe, was head of publicity at the Plaza Hotel. That's right. That's right. He he worked for many different hotels. He was so good that he was in demand and and moved from one hotel to the other. Yeah, he was a character too. Yeah, well, he <laughs> they don't make him like Harvey anymore. He, they were just unusual personalities that were involved in the era of publicity in the fifties. Oh, today it's totally different. Up, he came up with so many stunts, just like his his peers did it in the nineteen fifties. He said uh, they were opening a, a new. Uh, lighted golf course at the Hacienda when he was working at the Hacienda. I think it was 56 or 57. And he had this this brainstorm, why don't I have a, a lovely young woman in a negligee and we'll call the caption Night Tea Time. And, and he just came up with those things one after the other. He and, and Al Freeman and, and Gene Murphy and Herb McDonald were just gifted publicists. Yes, and they do deserve to be recognized, and, and you do. And it's an interesting way you laid out the book, because I'm just going to read some of the title, the chapter titles, Vegas Rising, Selling Vegas, Entertainment Capital, Women in Las Vegas, Struggles for Black Entertainers, Mississippi in the Desert, Mob Vegas, Atomic Vegas, and the Rat Pack, of course. And so much of that, in my introduction, I alluded to it, so much was going on at the time, but it really defined... Las Vegas in the 50s, and that image carried over into the next decade, and parts of it still are around today. Oh, absolutely. What I was trying to figure out with this book was what explained how Las Vegas could go from roughly a million tourists in 1950 to a roughly tenfold increase by the end of the decade. And what I discovered was it was their their genius through the Chamber of Commerce, Las Vegas News Bureau, the, the activity of the publicists, and then they had two wonderful informal ambassadors of, of Las Vegas in the era, Abe Schiller and Wilbur Clark. So it, it was the combination of all those people working together. Interesting time in Las Vegas history where you had that beginnings of cooperation in a lot of different areas. We talk about public-private partnership in Las Vegas today. And when I refer to Las Vegas, obviously, I'm also talking about Clark County, because that's where the Strip is, and downtown is the city of Las Vegas. But you had the beginnings of cooperation, and that cooperation extended again through the decades and remains to this day. Oh, absolutely. They, they knew the challenge ahead of them. They had, in, in the 1930s and the 1940s, decided that the future for Las Vegas, if they were going to grow, was going to be through tourism. And one thing that they, they learned right after World War II is that most cities realized that Americans had wanted to travel in the Great Depression but couldn't, had wanted to travel in World War II but couldn't. So they expected this boom in domestic travel after the war, and they realized that they, they had to work diligently not to be left behind. And they were amateurs in the 1930s at this, so they, they decided that they needed the expertise of a truly gifted publicity firm. And in 1948, they were able, the Chamber of Commerce hired Steve Hannigan and Associates. Steve Hannigan had been associated with the successful promotion of Miami Beach and, and Sun Valley, Idaho. And they saw him as the man who could show them the model for how you sell Las Vegas in the post-World War II period. When you started to do the research, how did you, in your mind, decide to lay out 
the book? Because again, I referenced some of your chapter or all of your chapter titles. How did you decide to approach this look at Las Vegas to get these various segments in that order, or even not necessarily in that order, but included in the overall book? What was your premise for approaching the book? Oh, good question. It's not a traditional chronological account of Las Vegas, except for chapter one, which is Vegas Rising. That is, I, I walk the reader through the, the chronological development of Las Vegas, primarily the, the resort corridor uh, along the Strip. That is the foundation chapter. And then I thought with that foundation chapter in place, I could talk about the aspects of, of Las Vegas that, that really struck me as important. When I read through, and this took me a long time, I tried to go through every issue of the Review Journal and the Las Vegas Sun. Not that I read every article in every issue in the 1950s, but I went through each issue looking to determine what were the most important issues of the day or of the month or of the year. And that's really what helped me define the chapters. There were there were so many stories. If we deal with the chapter of... Um, Mississippi in, in the desert. There were so many articles dealing with the challenges for African Americans in Las Vegas in, in the two newspapers, primarily the, the Las Vegas Sun, that I thought I, I need to find out who were the, the key people in, in trying to break down segregation in Las Vegas. And that led me to some wonderful oral histories that are in the Special Collections Library at UNLV. So it was, it was really my reading of the newspapers that determined what topics I should really focus upon. When you went to the oral history and you realized the background on a lot of these people and, and the times, were you able to get in touch with either the sons and daughters or grandsons and granddaughters of some of these people to get a sense of what they were like on a personal level? No, I really didn't. The, the, but the one interview that, that helped me immeasurably... I was looking to try and understand what the challenge was for African-American entertainers, because as late as the mid-50s, most of them, if they performed in Las Vegas, they couldn't stay in the resort hotels. And I did contact Johnny Mathis, who first performed in Las Vegas in 1958, and he was so gracious, he granted me uh, two interview times. One, I have a small segment on the challenge of... uh, Havana, Cuba, to Las Vegas in the 1950s, and he performed in Havana. So I did an interview with him about his experience in Havana, but then the the focus of the other one was on what it was like to be a successful African-American entertainer to perform in in the biggest room in Las Vegas, the Copa Room at the Sands, but not be able to stay at the Sands, not be able to dine at the Sands, and not even think about gambling at the Sands. So that it was this very personal uh, account of what it was like, and he was much more philosophical about it than I think I could have been, but he was very, very helpful. Did you get a chance to research Bob Bailey and his contributions? I did. Bob Bailey, uh, uh, goodness, I think there were three different interviews with Bob Bailey that I read, and then he he wrote an autobiography that, that was also helpful. He was a guest on my show when he wrote the book. I've known Bob for a long time. He's a great guy. Oh, he, he was a wonderful presence. Uh, he arrived in Las Vegas with the opening of the Moulin Rouge in, in 1955 and just remained a fixture in, in Las Vegas. One of the challenges, though, for, for any historian who uses oral histories is all of us don't have perfect memories. And sometimes we confuse 
the order of things. So oral histories by themselves are useful, but you have to do your best to try and confirm what someone says in that oral history. Not that they're purposely trying to mislead the interviewer, but you have to read multiple oral histories to try and get a sense of what truly happened. It provides the flavor, but you're not necessarily exact on the facts because everybody has faulty memories when they recount all this stuff. If you ask me, uh, Ira, what I did yesterday in in the correct order, I couldn't do it. I can't remember two minutes ago, so there you go. (laughs) (laughs) So you can imagine the challenge if you're interviewing someone, as I did with Johnny Mathis, in I think it was 2016 when I did the interview, I was asking him to remember what what was happening to him in 1958. He actually turned out to be spot on in most of what he had to say because I, I worked to confirm what he told me. Did you get anybody turning you down for an interview that you wanted to interview um, or that you wanted to talk to? Yes. I, I, well, I, she didn't turn me down. I was really interested in Nat King Cole, who was such a big presence in, in Las Vegas and, and one of the true pioneers to integrate the showrooms in Las Vegas. And of course, he died in in the 1960s. And I I tried several times to get in touch with his daughter, Natalie, and never could, and then found out that she had been desperately ill and and she passed away. Because she she had gone to Las Vegas with her father, and it would have been very nice to get her perspective on what her father went through in Las Vegas. You can't always get everybody that you want, too. That's so, right. yeah. But but I did get I did have the good fortune of interviewing uh, several women who were either dancers or showgirls in the dance lines in the 1950s, and they were wonderful to, to get a sense of how how special that time was for them. They they Las Vegas was the best place if you were a dancer or a showgirl in the 1950s. Las Vegas paid better, accommodations were better. And it was just the the magnet that drew the the best dancers and showgirls. Well, let's take a break. My guest, Larry Gregg, is author of Becoming America's Playground, Las Vegas in the 1950s, published by the University of Oklahoma Press and available on Amazon and all the usual places. We'll be right back. We'll be back with more Talk About Las Vegas with Ira in just a moment. You are an adventurer, and your adventure awaits right around the corner at the Springs Preserve. Here, everyone can explore hiking and bike trails, participate in hands-on activities and classes, jump on a train ride, wander through a botanical garden, and more. Visit springspreserve.org. Now, let's get back to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Welcome back. I'm talking with Larry Gregg. He's author of Becoming America's Playground, Las Vegas in the 1950s published by the University of Oklahoma Press and available at Amazon and all the usual places. And Larry, we were talking about some of the chapters and some of the people that you've talked to. There were also events that were significant during that time. And one of your chapters is devoted to what's called Atomic Vegas. So clearly, the atomic testing that went on there was a big event. And it it also, strangely enough, had a, I would think, a positive impact on tourism. It wouldn't now, but it seemed to then. What is ironic about uh, atomic testing in Las Vegas is that the federal government decided that it needed a place for the testing of tactical atomic weapons, not, not the big hydrogen bomb testing, which was done in the Pacific. And they looked at three or four locations in the country and decided that northwest of Las Vegas would be perfect because there were almost always prevailing winds that would blow radioactive clouds away from Los Angeles and Las Vegas. And when you first think about having that 
that close to your community, you would be apprehensive. But the federal government assured the residents it would be safe. The U.S. senators, notably Pat McCarran of Nevada, reassured people it would be safe. Uh, The mayor of Las Vegas, C.D. Baker, said it would be safe. The local papers, the, the Review Journal and The Sun, said it would be safe. So there was a general acceptance of the atomic testing, and before you know it, Las Vegas promoters see this as as another way to sell their city. Where else in America could you go for a vacation and have a chance to wake up early in the morning and to see an atomic test not that far away from Las Vegas? In fact, some of the hotels began selling packages around the dates of these these expected atomic tests, and according to to the publicist at the Flamingo, Abe Schiller, he said, you can't find a room in the place when we have these announced tests for the uh, atom bomb. Well, you live and learn because clearly we wouldn't do it today. <laughs> so, no, absolutely not. Right. And, and, and in fairness to them, I, I remember reading a, an oral history that the photographer Don English did, and he took so many iconic photos of, of the atomic tests. And he said, you know, had we known... Then, what we know now, we wouldn't have done that, but we were assured that it was something safe to do, and, and we, we saw it as just a, a useful way of selling our city. It is amazing when you look at it in hindsight and realize how not only was it something that should be avoided, but it was something not only was accepted, but promoted. So it's just fascinating in a different place although, and time. Although, if, if I could interrupt, sure. by 19, 1957, some people are beginning to raise very good questions about the testing because there there had been some radioactive clouds that had not blown away quickly and had drifted over populated areas and a lot of also a lot of farmers began noticing very heavy deaths among their livestock and people began raising questions about whether or not this is something good to do. And I, I did read the minutes from the Atomic Energy Commission meeting minutes, and they seriously considered moving the test from Nevada to, to the Pacific. But that's near the end of the testing. The testing is 51 through 58, the atmospheric testing, and then they would go to underground testing. Well, I also was referring to the fact that I believe the News Bureau was involved in the promotion of the calendar girls uh, with the, the mushroom cloud. Oh, that absolutely, kind of, that absolutely. Kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Don English did that. Right. Uh, and again, he, he, he was apologetic when he did the interview in the 21st century, but it, would just, it seemed like this golden opportunity as, as another way to, to sell Las Vegas. He had actually had a wonderful dancer, a Copa girl, in 53, who was also trained as a ballerina. And he had her up uh, Angel's Peak, at Mount Charleston, and he, he knew when the, the, the atomic test was going to be, and he had her do a dance, and he did this sequence of photos that were printed in the Las Vegas Review Journal, and it, it, was, it, was, it hit the news wires, and many of those photos were seen all across the country. Yes, it's a flair for publicity and promotion, no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. Of all the different elements of Las Vegas in the 50s, from your point of view as a historian, what was the most significant? We didn't touch on the mob yet, but clearly the mob had an influence, but, but that may not have been the most important element. From your point of view, what was the most important, significant either event or element in Las Vegas in the 50s? Well, it's tough to pick out one, but one that, that immediately comes to mind is the idea that if you're going to have a successful resort hotel, whether it's the 1950s or, or later, 
you have to have something that separates you from your competitors because all resort hotels offer pretty much the same thing. Nice rooms that are relatively low cost, affordable meals, access to all kinds of gambling. And they quickly determined in the late 40s and early 50s that what you could do to separate your business from your competitor is to have the best entertainers in the world performing in your showroom. And you could offer them with either no cover charge or a very modest cover charge. So what happens throughout the 50s is this this battle to get the best singers, the best stand-up comics, the best dance lines in, in your hotel. And it's a competition of the, the Sahara versus the Sands, the, the Flamingo versus the Tropicana, the Dunes versus the Riviera. And that's a model that, that has continued in Las Vegas in the subsequent 70 years, but it, it really begins in, in the 1950s. And it's, it, it happens at a good time because the movie industry is in, is in decline because of television. The number of movies being made begins to decline, and a lot of those stars need work. And some of their agents persuade them that they might become a good headliner in, in Las Vegas. Even the B-movie actor Ronald Reagan did a, a routine once in Las Vegas, and he did it very successfully. You had Noel Coward as well perform in Las Vegas. You had Mort Saul in Las Vegas from that period of time and into yeah, the Noel 60s. Noel Coward was, was one of the most unusual successes because he was this playwright in England and this cabaret singer, and when people first heard that he was going to be a headliner at the Desert Inn, they thought, this can't possibly work. But he was a sellout. I mean, he was the show to go see. When Frank Sinatra learned that Noel Coward was going to be at the Desert Inn, he invited all of his friends to go with him to Las Vegas from Southern California. He had them all on the plane, and it was, it was spectacular. It was like that every night, two shows every night. They were always sold out, and he got national news coverage, and the Desert Inn profited immensely. If I nailed you down to three people who had the most influence in Las Vegas or on Las Vegas in the 1950s, who would those three be? Wow. Well, well for the... The uh, resort hotels, you have to include Frank Sinatra, who, who becomes the premier performer in Las Vegas. And the Copa Room uh, at the Stans Hotel becomes, in his words, his room. So he, he's the guy who can fill up not just the Sands Copa Room. As people in the Chamber of Commerce said, he fills the city. So, so Sinatra is, on the entertainment side, hugely important. I would argue that the someone from the news bureau also is important, and I, I fall back on, on photographer Don English. English wasn't the only photographer for the news bureau. There was another talented fellow named Joe Buck. But English really set the standard for how you sell Las Vegas through photography and through newsreels. Uh, he also made some newsreels. So Sinatra, Don English, and, and a third figure... That, that comes to mind fairly quickly is the first African-American dentist in Las Vegas, a man named James McMillan, becomes a leader in the NAACP, and, and he, with the support of, of the other leaders of the NAACP, spearhead the effort to integrate the Strip in, in March of 1960. So for very different reasons, I think those three people are, are genuinely significant. I like your choices, and I think two out of the three would be modest enough to be embarrassed by your nominating them for that position. Well, I actually told 
when I interviewed Don English, I, I said something like this to him. And he said, no, no, no. It, it wasn't me. He said it was the, the, the talented developers of the hotels. But my counter-argument to him was, however, you made those, those uh, resort hotels known to the world. Right, which you have to fill the resorts, and that's how you do it, by letting it be known around the world what these resorts can do. Yeah, it's an interesting choice, those three, and I, I understand you're selecting those three. In terms of events, was there one event that, for you, would be the defining moment for Las Vegas in the 1950s? Was it the struggle with the black entertainers and the desegregation, or was it the atomic testing, or was it the mob? Well, one that, that, that jumps to mind, and this is going to surprise you, I suppose, when uh, the movie Meet Me in Las Vegas was released in 1956, which was this uh, musical comedy about the Sands Hotel, about this cowboy, Dan Daly, who would every year come to the Sands Hotel, and he'd always lose money, but he liked going there, and he shows up, 56, and he meets this wonderful dancer, Sid Charisse, and invites her to go out with him. And as long as he holds her hand, he wins money. And it's this just this pleasant romp through what Las Vegas was like in 1956. And when it was going to be released, Jack and Trotter at, at the Sands Hotel had this, this stroke of genius. He said, let's have the, not only the premiere in Las Vegas, let's persuade Milton Berle, who had a very popular variety show in the mid-50s, to do his show live the same night as the premiere. So they have the Milton Berle show, which attracted about 35 million people. And he has on the show a short clip of the film. He has Dan Daly. He has Sid Charisse. And after the Berle show is over, there's this caravan of sports cars that go downtown for the premiere of the movie. And when when they're there, it's being covered by about 80 journalists from around the country, entertainment journalists. And the next day, the next week, there are these wonderful stories about how beautiful the resort city of Las Vegas is and how you've got to get on the next plane and get to Las Vegas. But most importantly, the, the publicist at the Sands Hotel, Al Freeman, said months afterwards that they were still getting more requests for rooms at the Sands than they could accommodate. And the reason I picked that is that it's this wonderful conjunction of using both film and television to promote not just the Sands Hotel, but Las Vegas as this wonderful playground. Well, that's a great way to leave, Larry. So my guest has been Larry Gregg. He's author of Becoming America's Playground, Las Vegas in the 1950s, published by the University of Oklahoma Press and available at Amazon and all the usual places. Larry, thanks for being on the show. Well, it was a treat to chat with you, Ira. Thank you. See you next time. You've been listening to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. Happy Las Vegas!